Welcome to The Sword and the Trowel, a podcast of Founders Ministries. Founders Ministries exists for the recovery of the gospel and the reformation of churches. I'm Jerry Longshore. And I'm Tom Askell. Thanks so much for listening to The Sword and the Trowel today. Very glad to have you with us. And we're excited about the Institute of Public Theology. Applications are now open, and we are getting word that a number of applications are coming in. And mm-hmm. so we encourage you to fill one out if you're interested in attending the Institute. Classes will begin in the fall. You'll be teaching a course on the pastor in the public square. Right. And Dr. Tom Nettles will be teaching church history, pillar and buttress of the truth. Up to the Reformation. Yeah, it's going to be a wonderful, wonderful time. Yeah, it it is. And you know, the application um, process is pretty rigorous and it's intended to be that way. So if you're thinking about applying, you might want to go ahead and get the book that we ask you to read and write a report on or your evaluation of. It's No Place for Truth by David Wells. And we think that uh, some of the things that Wells dealt with now, what, 25 years ago or so, are still foundational for us and thinking rightly about how to take the gospel of Jesus Christ into the world. So uh, get that book, read it. Even if you don't apply, you ought to get that book and read it. It'll help you. Yes. We are delighted to have in studio today, Dr. Joe Boot. Uh, Dr. Boot, uh, we have had a podcast in the past with you, but you were up on the screens and you were in Canada and now you're here. In the land of the free. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Breathing the free air. Yes. Breathing the free air of Florida. Let me give a brief introduction. Uh, Dr. Boot is a Christian thinker, cultural apologist, philosopher, founder of the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity, and founding pastor of Westminster Chapel, Toronto. Proud to call Canada home, Joseph is originally from Great Britain and was work, has worked in the fields of Christian apologetics, worldview education, and church leadership for over 20 years on both sides of the Atlantic. And there's more uh, to your bio that can be found at ezrainstitute.ca. Is that accurate That's on the correct, website? Yeah. Wonderful. Well, absolutely delighted to have you here with us Thank today. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, Real so you've be been here. in Florida, what, 24 hours or so, or not quite? Yeah, about 24 hours. Yeah, yeah. so uh, we're glad to have you here. We know there's a lot of difference between uh, even Florida and other states in the United States. We, one of our members has been up north for a while and has just come back, and he was talking about the differences between the state that he came from in Florida and and we have a thousand people a day moving into the state, just you know, largely because of the freedoms that we have here. And you haven't experienced that kind of freedom in Canada. And in fact, you've had some things happen in the church that mm-hmm. you founded that you are still an elder of. Mm-hmm. Uh, what happened over the last couple of weeks in uh, your congregation? Yeah, so uh, at, uh, at, at, as some people, some of your listeners will know that there's been a lot of uh, restrictions placed on the churches now for about 14 months in Canada, and um, uh, myself and, a, and another pastor in Ontario um, led a campaign back last spring called Reopen Ontario Churches mm-hmm. to try and get the churches open to 50%, and after negotiations with the Ontario provincial government, we got them opened at 30%, um, but then after the summer there was a lot of backtracking, and by the late fall, early winter, we were back into a lockdown situation, um, 15% uh, for the churches. Mm-hmm. And now we're actually, a few weeks ago, we were back, put back down to 10 people um, for, for places of worship in Ontario. And, so, and some provinces have been under even stricter controls than that. Mm-hmm. Now, for, for quite some time, uh, we were creative. Um, don't want to say exactly too much on the podcast about how we managed to because never know who's uh, who's listening right. but how we were able to uh, move around um those res- those restrictions uh, a lot of churches um were some of us were public in our in our resistance westminster was one of those um and 
uh, churches found ways around some of those things, and then some of us were, were, were found out early, and some of us have been found out a little later. Um, and uh, my own church, um, a couple of Sundays ago, we had 10 squad cars turn up with flashing lights, massive overkill and sort of intimidation tactic outside the church after an enhanced lockdown had been announced. Um, and uh, it was the first Sunday after an enhanced lockdown. And um, a, a considerable group of officers came in, armed officers came into the building uh, with anti-stab vests on and so forth and, and gave tickets to, to two of my fellow pastors. Mm. So, um, you know, this is, this is right now the environment that the, the churches are in. The, the real challenge, I think, for, for, for those of us who are trying to emphasize the freedom of the church is that we're pretty isolated among the churches. So, um, What do you mean by that? So uh, to the best of our knowledge, um, Westminster would have been the only church in a, in a, in a uh, city of five million-ish in the GTA. Maybe there was one other, but we think we may have been alone mm. um, in publicly... Uh, resisting the the measures. Now, there have been churches, some of you guys have heard about, that are in Ontario further out from Toronto in different areas like Waterloo, one of my pastoral friends there, and in Windsor and and other places uh, near Barrie, Alliston, and then, of course, some in Western Canada, very high profile, like uh, James Coates' case. Um, But when we... uh, uh, the Liberty Coalition Canada is an organization that formed through a group of pastors coming together to say we've got to get the churches open. Um, and um, they led a campaign for uh, a number of weeks for the Easter weekend to get churches to across Canada to open up for Good Friday and Easter Sunday without restriction. We managed to get 79 churches over the entire nation. How, uh, how many churches would you guess? Well, just in the, the region where uh, the the institute is in the Niagara region, there are seven hundred churches, and that's where there's just five hundred thousand people. So, if you yeah. multiply that, the population of Canada is around thirty seven million. So, um, you know, if you do the math, not my forte. Uh, Seventeen churches. Seventy nine. Seventy nine. churches was 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 what we could muster from the across nation. the nation. Why do you think that is, Joe? I mean, what's the you know what are the arguments you're hearing against? opening the church and doing what you've been doing? Yeah. Well, some of the responses have morphed a little bit as this thing has gone on. Mm-hmm. So I think early on, like like um, like many believers, uh, when nobody knew what was happening, um, we were all ready for a few weeks to say, yeah. uh, let's, let's suspend public worship. That's a reasonable request uh, until we know what's going on and get, get a sense of that. Then it quickly became clear that uh, this was this was um, not what the media was representing it to be, and I think at that point, as um, churches began to to speak up, uh, some some churches I should say began pastors began to speak up. The primary arguments were things like, well, Romans thirteen, you know, uh, usually not properly interpreted. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to submit. The other what big one was, you know, we've got to be a good witness. So locking down the church is love of neighbor. Mm-hmm. Shutting down worship is being a good witness for Christ. Of course, when you're told two weeks to flatten the curve, which was what was announced <laughs> to Ontario, that, that sounds reasonable to start with. <laughs> 14 months later, um, and you're in totally unprecedented legal territory, you're in 
totally unprecedented social territories never happened in the history of the Western world, an indefinite, unprecedented lockdown and restrictions on the church. And where you've got cases in places like the United States in the Supreme Court, and even in back in where I'm from in England, where just the threat of legal action had the English Parliament back off of a lockdown in, in the beginning of 2021. And then a big case was won just recently in Scotland, where the justice said, you know, whatever that is online, that's not church. And this is ne- we've not locked down churches since the 17th century. Um, mm. It's illegal, open the churches. In Canada, it just seems to go in the other direction. We've got a bit of a problem with a thing called the Canadian Charter from mm. 1982, section one and two. And in section one, there are caveats that surround the fundamental freedoms offered to Canadians, uh, which include, of course, freedom of worship and assembly and mm. so on. They're caveated in section one that the government can basically suspend those if they think it's demonstrably justifiable. And we're in totally untested water for the charter here. And um, the government in Canada does not seem anxious to have these cases for the churches go to the Supreme Court. Um, and that the uh, the courts, the you know the um, juridical arm of government has has not been operating properly. So many of the courts have been shut, and so the whole thing is one great big mess. Mm. And the the main message from most of the churches throughout all of this has been stay locked down, stay shut down, that's loving neighbor. And if you do anything different, you're disobeying government and you're not, you're not being a good witness. That tends to have been the, the main argument. So the law enforcement, in, in your particular situation, you got James Coates, law enforcement comes in there, he's put in jail. Law enforcement is now coming to your church two Sundays ago, came again just this past Sunday, is that right? They came, yeah. came again. You're mandated by the state there to be under 10 people mm-hmm. in your church. 10 or less, yeah. 10 or less. And they've been handing out tickets now to mm-hmm. your church's leadership. So mm-hmm. what, what's supposed to come next? I mean, what, have, you, have you spoken with the leadership and what they're going to do? Or I mean, does it, do you anticipate them coming again? Yeah, I mean, as a, church, as a church leadership, we're obviously wrestling with what are the next steps. We've kind of seen how... Um, where, where churches of, of, uh, in these suburban areas have gone before us in this, uh, it's getting to the point where the, 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 the government is just chaining up their churches. They're just locking their doors. Mm-hmm. Uh, by they, they're getting, the government's getting injunctions from the courts to just shut the churches down. And so I think in the case actually of, of James Coates, I think they went underground. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, another church in, in Waterloo has pretty much just done the same now. Um, because what all that will happen is you just collect exorbitant levels of tickets, you know, tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of dollars with threats of prison sentences and everything else. Um, or you take a more underground uh, approach. So that's what um, that's what the churches who have been resisting are, are grappling with now. Who've had the police show up is for how many weeks do you do this, mm-hmm. and how do you how do you respond? Are there creative ways of responding? How do you retain your building? I mean, if you've got as well, some of these churches have schools, and if they lock down the buildings, then you've just had your Christian school locked down as well. Um, so th- th- these are these are real challenges, and. Uh, you know, churches, including our own, is wrestling with how to how to best respond. How do you continue to? It's the balance of how do you care for the flock pastorally, whilst trying to resist what are really tyrannical regulations. Well, I mean, there there must be hundreds of thousands 
or if not millions of Canadians that are dying of COVID. And that's why these extreme measures are taking place, right? <laughs> yeah, I think, the, I think the, the latest count, as far as I'm aware, I think this is accurate for right now in, in you know, 15 months of this is um, 24,000 COVID-related deaths. And you could probably uh, reduce that by a third, maybe half. In fact, in Britain, I know for a fact that uh, the government just reduced their numbers by 25% because of the mm-hmm. misattribution of, of, of deaths. We've certainly had that going on in Canada as well. Um, so the uh, I believe for 2020, adjusted for population and age, the all-cause mortality for 2020 was, was down. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, with eight to 10,000 flu deaths a year in Canada, um, it's very difficult when you look at that to say, well, yes, there's a nasty bug going around. Um, how can this possibly warrant the destruction of the economy, the suspension of people's civil liberties, the destruction of people's mental health, the, the, what, the, what the impact upon children, especially upon families, upon pe- the destruction of people's businesses, their livelihoods. Uh, Ontario is the most indebted sub-national province in the Western world, and the debt mm-hmm. is going uh, through the roof. Um, and you and charter freedoms, uh, it's as though they just don't count, they don't mean anything. Mm. And uh, the government just keeps extending its emergency powers. And we've got the, the situation in Ontario where you've got a conservative provincial government, small c, let's just be clear on that, Canada is mm-hmm. a socialist democracy. Um, appealing to the federal government to lock the country down harder, to shut down all the airports, to completely shut the, 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 the land borders, uh, to turn Canada into some form of um, prison uh, for its population. It's, and there is no meaningful, you've got a few isolated political figures, and apart from them, there is no meaningful resistance to this. You know, Jared, you and I have talked about what it means to love. And uh, it seems to me that if there are these kinds of uh, overreaching actions by the government that are based upon things that are not true, then the most loving thing you can do is to stand up and say, you know what, the emperor has no clothes mm-hmm. and uh, we need to be meeting. And, and so when you are meeting in defiance of these actions that are based on lies, you're mm-hmm. saying we're not going to live that way. We're going to live on the basis of truth. Yeah. And I've tried to articulate to, uh, you know, in various articles and in things that I've said publicly that uh, the way the church is responding right now is a reversal of the way it's historically responded to much more severe situations. Mm-hmm. So what's changed? I mean, since the early centuries of the church, when Christians went into the cities in the midst of plague, while the pagan doctors were even fleeing and ministered to the sick, I mean, are the commands to gather around the Lord's table, to pray for the sick, to, uh, you know, you you shall lay hands on the sick and they will recover, or call for the elders of the church and and for the prayer of faith to make the sick person well, unless it's covid Um, I don't see that caveat in in the scripture. So all of these functions that the church took so seriously for centuries, uh, where Christians ministered in the midst of these uh, times, we've we've said that love looks like the opposite of that for Mm -hmm. the 21st century. What's changed? I think our attitude towards the state has changed towards what government is. Uh, We no longer have a view of the the self-government of the individual and the family. The, the church as a government, the vocations as a form of government. Government is now seen purely in terms of the state 
And in a place like Canada, we want the state to be our lord and provider, cradle to grave security, socialized medicine. That's a big part of this, of course, mm -hmm. because in mm -hmm. Canada, all the medicine is controlled and funded by the state. He who pays the piper calls the tune. So in those kind of environments, uh, the choices are very limited. And so I think the difference now is that we see government as having a responsibility for our salvation, practically, yeah. uh, for our welfare, for our provision, for our health, everything. It's the responsibility of the state. And so the promises that the government is making is we're going to keep you safe. We'll provide for you. We're going to pretty much save you. We're going to save your life. We're going to save your family. We'll give you these handouts to um, keep you dependent on state subsidy um, while the state uh, restores the nation. Um, and so the notion that the church would have an independent role in that as a form of government seems to be, as it has always historically, seems to have been completely mm. bypassed or missed in Canada. Yeah. Uh, as you articulate what's going on in Canada, it's hard for me to restrain my blood boiling. Like, and I, I want to channel it with great patience and steadfastness and faith in the Lord. But, you know, the, to even conceive that the case with Pastor James Coates is not um, a solitary case, but there are literally law enforcement agents armed coming into your congregation on a Sunday, and then there are um, literally no, maybe a few churches assembling for the public worship of Almighty God, given this tyrannical approach of government, and uh, while there is a sickness, one that is not the, the Black Plague. Mm -hmm. I can't, it, it's it's terribly disheartening, it's Orwellian, and I, I, I'm baffled, dumbfounded, that Christians cannot stand up and say, the public worship of God um, must be executed. We must stand and assemble and shepherd the flock of God. Pastors, we must care for God's people. We must speak the truth uh, to those who are in positions of authority, uh, according to Romans 13, acknowledging that they are ministers of God, ministers of the Lord Jesus Christ, and must operate accordingly. I, it's just amazing to me. And I mean, you're here from Canada and we've talked a number of times about uh, the, it, it just seems like we're on the same trajectory here. Canada is very much out front. And there might be a little bit of a debate about, well, you know, America has a different history, maybe some different impulses. And so what does that mean? But the more I hear you talk about the state of uh, the church and in Canada, it seems to me that we really are mapping that same direction. We're hearing some the same kind of arguments uh, here, except I haven't heard of cases of actually law enforcement coming in upon the churches. But it seems to me that trajectory holds. I know you're in, you're in Canada, but speak to us honestly about what you see in America. Do you do you mm -hmm. what what ought we be doing given what's going on in your situation? Well, it's interesting. I think one of the reasons why the the Canadian government doesn't want people traveling right now and <laughs> is doing everything in its power to stop people traveling is they actually don't want people to see Canadians to see how many of the US states and indeed other parts of the world are handling this completely differently. Um, where, uh, in fact, countries, even in Europe, where they've been much harder hit, um, uh, and yet they're taking a completely different posture. I think they don't want that. Um, and I think for, for somebody who's um, lived in Canada now for getting on, well, 18 years now, um, to come to the, to the States, in fact, all the States I've been in on this trip, is like breathing the free air. 
Uh, it's a completely different atmosphere. It's a completely different uh, context. I mean, I just spoke at a conference in South Dakota. There were getting on for a thousand people there. There wasn't a mask in sight. Um, and so the whole, the whole atmosphere right now, and even though I, I agree with you that the trajectory of the U.S., uh, of all the West, really, is it's on the same trajectory. At the moment, the U.S. is way behind that. And I think the, the, the response by many of the states to this whole situation and of the church more broadly is very illustrative of that. Mm-hmm. Um, the, 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 the widespread sense of resistance, a widespread sense of outrage with the presumption of the state to be able to command the church in a unilateral way uh, indefinitely to do what it's told. Um, that seems to most of the people that I'm speaking to uh, to be an almost unthinkable posture uh, for the church. Now, I'm sure there are pockets where it's not, um, but in general, there's a very, very different attitude to the lordship of Christ, his government over uh, the family, the church, the state, and what the implications of that actually are. I think there's a very, at the moment, there's just, I think it's over very many years. I mean, Canada didn't used to be this way. I mean, the, the Canadian national motto drawn from Psalm 72, verse 8, he shall have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. It's on our coat of arms. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. Canada was a, was, a, was a conservative Christian nation. Um, but over the last 40, 50 years, and especially over the last 20, the changes have been so f- rapid and so radical um, that we're at the point now where we, it's very difficult to even find a Christian, even in the Reformed tradition, politician, ready to stand up against any of this and speak for the freedom and independence of the Church of Jesus Christ. Yeah. And, and our, our, our right to, to, to answer first to God, and that there are times when, uh, you know, Romans 13 is a prescription about the role of the state as God's servant. And if the state forbids what God commands or commands what God forbids, civil disobedience is a Christian duty. That is, for me to even articulate that, um, I've been experiencing no platforming in, mm-hmm. in, in, in Canada um, because of just talking about the freedom of the Church of Jesus Christ mm-hmm. and uh, the, the fact that Jesus is Lord both over the state and over the church and you cannot, the state has no authority to suspend the, the, the church that Jesus Christ established and bought with his own blood and to suspend our institutional existence. And the number of Christians who think that you can just say, oh, well, don't worry, we can go on Zoom, we can have an avatar baptism, baptize yourself, uh, you know, um, sit in a room on your own and put your headphones mm. on as though that is the church. And, and they actually think that that's a valid response to this situation, that, that nothing's really changed that much. It shows you the collapse of our understanding of the doctrine of the church. Yeah, you've articulated that so well. And one of the things that's been so disheartening to me is to see how uh, Christian, evangelical, even Reformed leaders in the West, especially the United States, have responded to this governmental overreach time after time. And, and done so in language that sounds, you know, very missiological. And there's a difference. If, if we were going, if I were going into China or going into some uh, clearly uh, God-less right. 
country, I would act in ways to try to establish a beachhead there. But the beachhead has been established. Right. Christianity came here. We, we live off of the blessings of what God's people under the uh, blessing of God's spirit and his word have created here. And so the church has been able to send missionaries and do incredible works that have benefited the world because of the faithfulness of those men and women that on whose shoulders we stand for generations. And now it's like, oh no, you know, we just can't do that for missiological purposes. That is a brilliant point because sometimes there's a sort of primitivism in the way that um, pastors and leaders talk about the church's function. And they'll say, well, well, you know, the early church, you know, didn't demonstrate for their freedom and so on. Well, <laughs> they, they were under uh, the emperor cult and they had to respond in a way, as you say, that was, uh, and they had to act in a manner that was a- appropriate to their circumstance. Mm. 2000 years on, and with the, the spread of the gospel and the, the steady development of freedom, I mean, the, I mean the, the assertion of the lordship of Jesus Christ over the emperor cult, when they refused to say Caesar is Lord, sprinkle their incense on the altar and get their state license. And they said, no, Jesus Christ is Lord. That led to the birth of the first truly free institution in the history of the Western world. And we have centuries now of let's call it Christianization that have given us these constitutional freedoms mm-hmm. that you have in the United States, we have in England, we have, we thought we had in Canada. Uh, and we have all of that to appeal to. And it's as though none of that exists. Right. It's as though we are to act as though t- 2000 years of church history haven't happened. And we're just under, we have to submit to some sort of dictatorial uh, attitude. No, we actually, we, we live in um, constitutional democracies. So we have this, the consent of the people to be governed. We elect our officials through a process of election. We have a, of a, a division of powers. Uh, we've got the lesser magistrates. Uh, we've got uh, the, the, in Canada, we, we, the charter and these fundamental freedoms. And it's as though people don't, Christians don't care about that. As though mm-hmm. it doesn't matter as though as though we just have to take the posture now of, well, you know, do whatever the state says, as though none of these hard-fought freedoms, which thankfully this moment, I mentioned this judge in Scotland, who's able to go back three, four hundred years. Uh, and, the, and by the way, the QC in that case actually said at the, at the outset, you are putting, the Scottish government has put the church in an impossible position, obey God or obey the state. Uh, they believe Jesus Christ is Lord over the state, over the church, and their first obligation is to obey God. Well, the judge accepted the argument. Mm. We haven't mm. even got the courage to make it. <clears throat> yeah. Mm. Yeah. You know, that seems to be a doctrinal issue, obviously. And you, you have uh, written on this, articulated this in various ways, comes out in your book, Mission of God. Uh, it's coming out in other online articles and speaking that you've done about, uh, and maybe even particularly in the American context, some pietism, like the pietism um, over against a vision of Christianity where it is all of Christ for all of life, this kind of Kuyperian vision. And mm-hmm. You've written an article, um, I think, where you identified, you, know, you said some, some would approach it as churchianity, rather than Christianity, Mm -hmm. where we have this truncated view of the kingdom of God, truncated view of the lordship of Christ, and then a truncated view of our duties as Christians. And so we're, we're, um, it seems to me that kind of pietistic approach leaves one susceptible to just taking whatever comes down
down the pipe and having no yeah. ability to stand there and contend for the truth in the public square. So mm-hmm. I'd love to hear you articulate as our listeners are considering, what is that pietism? Uh, how do you see it manifesting itself, particularly in the American context, maybe the American Baptist context? And then uh, what kind of correctives need to be done that we would have what we need to actually stand up and speak the before truth. you answer that i want to make a distinction here see if you would agree with this uh, of, of not pietism in and of itself but a subjective pietism mm-hmm. you know because i i want to argue that what you are arguing for is true pietism right true piety yeah. but yeah. we have this subjective piety that kind of yeah. just me and jesus and inside the walls yeah. so That'd be a legitimate distinction. If pietism means reading the Bible and praying, devotion to the Lord, heart religion, all of that, yes and amen, the expression of that seems to be lacking. Subjectively, that's that's where it ends. So I think, yeah, I mean, that's a really important distinction in my view. Uh, Of course, as Christians, we must be concerned for personal piety, Um, that uh, we spend time in the Word of God, that we we, uh, spend time in prayer, that we are uh, concerned for, you know, personal and family devotions and th- these things are these things are uh, part of our heritage mm. our reformed heritage our evangelical heritage that is very important pietism i mean we could have a lengthy discussion about continental pietism and all of that and how it but but fundamentally the ism on the end usually an ism means there's been an overemphasizing of something uh to the uh, the decline of something else so uh it pietism is all it pretty much takes the view that the what's really important in life as a christian and what really matters is prayer bible study and worship uh, public public worship usually uh maybe unless it comes into too much conflict with the state uh, but then maybe it's just you and jesus and your bible and that's as good you can worship anywhere worship jesus in your backyard you know you don't need the church kind of a thing so pietism Tends to, to, tends to me, tends to collapse the Christian view of reality into my personal spiritual disciplines. Mm. And that that's all that matters. I'm going to heaven, it's me and Jesus. Interestingly enough, the Bible actually says nothing about you dying and going to heaven. It does talk about the kingdom, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven into the earth, but this whole notion of the soul's escape into heaven and so on, this kind of pietistic idea of the Christian life, rather than recognizing that actually Jesus comes preaching the gospel of the kingdom, terms of the missiological language the missio day the missiologists mm. would talk about uh and christ mentions specifically the church a couple of times in the new testament but he talks endlessly about the kingdom of god which is about the rule and reign of god and so i think the theological problem the broader backdrop to this problem is the identification the collapsing of the kingdom of god with the church with the church institute as though those are identical concepts and they emphatically are not identical concepts in scripture the church is uh, one of the institutional church is one of the means of the reality mm. of the kingdom of god but i know plenty of churches that have lost the gospel they are still institutional churches but there's no real manifestation of the kingdom of god in them at all um, and i know plenty of families though where the kingdom of god is being manifest and made uh, visible so the biblical idea of the kingdom is that the the lordship and the reign of jesus christ is being externalized and made manifest now of course we expect that that is going to be manifest in a peculiarly unique and powerful way 
through the life of the institutional church, that the reign of God will be manifest specifically there. Um, obviously, the tragedy in the, when we see apostate churches is, is that actually their lampstands are being taken away and they're not manifestations of the rule and reign of Christ. But the basileia, the kingdom, and the ecclesia are not identical. Um, and I think this, this, the, the attempt to identify the kingdom of God purely with the life of the institutional church, which was part of the problem with the medieval church as well, the basilica even, you know, the whole idea of the kingdom is the church institute. And so you must sprinkle the pixie dust of the church institute over, every, over the various areas of life in order to make them somehow churchified. This is the difference between churchianity and Christianity. Uh, whereas I think the biblical view, uh, the scriptural view, is that the, the lordship of Jesus Christ is over all, and everywhere where the believer, as part of the invisible body of Christ, is, a, is faithful to the Lord Jesus, there, however imperfect, is a manifestation of the kingdom of God. But if you've collapsed the kingdom into the ecclesia, purely into the institutional life of the gathered congregation, then what's going on in culture, Jared, it just isn't that important. What the state's doing just isn't that. It's not really our business. Mm -hmm. uh, what's going on in the school? What's going on in the arts? What's going on in economics? These are just, these are, it's a, imagine the, uh, the, the English double-decker bus, you know, the, the, the classical image of, of London and the red two-tier bus. It's as though Christianity and pietism has a two-story structure. And on the upper story, the really important spiritual stuff is Bible reading and prayer, church attendance and uh your personal spiritual disciplines at the lower deck is culture is law politics education the arts business and medicine and so on and those are just not that important they're certainly not going to escape the the, the the this creation at all you you just about get away with a resurrected body but but everything else is doomed so don't polish brass on a sinking ship uh that's just not important what's important is your spiritual life whereas the apostle paul says in romans 12 uh don't be conformed to the image of this will be transformed by the renewing of your minds and he says present your bodies as a living sacrifice as well holy and pleasing to god this is your spiritual worship so we've collapsed spirituality mm. into uh, an ethereal abstract uh disembodied kind of idea that's spirituality but the body and culture and everything associated with it is on a lower level it's just not that important and so when you start to speak to christians about law politics culture education being under the lordship of christ and therefore being able to respond coherently to a situation like this we've retreated so far into a so-called upper story of existence mm -hmm. this dualism of reality which is really gnostic in its root it's greek it's not hebraic it's not biblical uh we actually find that people do not know how to respond they're lost and so uh we start to construct eschatologies, eschatologies of escape from the world and from culture. If things get bad, don't worry. Next week, Jesus is coming. We'll be out of here. Uh, or we start constructing multiple kingdoms in the earth so that we don't have to be faithful in mm. the culture. Isn't this the exact opposite uh, mistake that the liberals made in the social gospel? You know, they divorced the same thing. They just went in the opposite direction. 
Absolutely. That, that, that's a great observation too, because sometimes if you start to talk about culture as a Christian, you're accused of being a social mm-hmm. gospeler. Mm-hmm. As though, but actually what they did is they actually hijacked the reformational evangelical vision. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at William, one of the founders of modern evangelicalism, William Wilberforce, nobody could accuse that man of being a social gospeler. Uh, certainly in England, he was regarded, along with Wesley and Whitfield, as one of the founders of modern evangelicalism. He took over his insights from the Puritans. Uh, who, who were applying the reformed idea of the sovereignty of God. You know, that's the centerpiece of Calvin, is the sovereignty of God over all of life. That's what he uh, emphasized most. This is picked up, of course, by the Puritans in our evangelical tradition, whether you're Baptist, Presbyterian, independent, whatever. And Wilberforce picks that up. And actually, it was a mark of evangelicalism that the gospel had profound implications mm. for all of cultural life. For your listeners who may not be familiar with Wilberforce, it's the abolition of the slave trade and multiple, he's, that's what he's most famous for, um, and um, numerous other social reforms in England. He says that we, because his argument was that uh, the scriptures, the word of God, God's covenant, brings obligations on us to to be applied in culture. And in fact, his argument with respect to slavery was that he would write to MPs and say, look, um, we can expect the judgment of God upon England if we do not deal with this egregious sin. And uh, that was the argument of the evangelicals. Now, what happened is as liberalism invaded the churches, it sought to de-Christianize it sort to retain the idea of progress in history. And of course, Marxism does that par excellence, right? The, as Christians, we begin with creation as mm-hmm. a, a fixed starting point in history, and we end with consummation. And in between, God is building and establishing his kingdom. And 1 Corinthians 15, Christ is going to hand over the kingdom to the Father at the end. So we have this idea of... The, of uh, an intentionality with respect to creation. There's a cultural mandate there. And then Christ tells us in Matthew 28, all authority is mine in heaven and in earth. Therefore, go and disciple all the nations. That idea of progress. Well, the liberals wanted to retain the idea of justice and change and transformation in society, but they didn't want Christ. Mm-hmm. They didn't want his lordship. They didn't want the gospel. This was going to be man constructing his kingdom by his power and his efforts, and we didn't need Jesus. We didn't need the gospel. You know, all of this, uh, we were talking before the, this uh, episode about uh, maybe finding some common ground with the best of those that are really banging the drum hard for social justice today. Mm. I mean, they're not completely wrong in their desires. And I, I do have great concerns that they've fallen mm-hmm. more along the pattern of what the social gospel folks did um, than what I'm yep. comfortable with. But we need to listen to some of the criticisms that they have because right. they may ha- they may be putting their finger on some real serious issues that, as evangelicals, we've not taken seriously enough. And particularly with the with this idea of progress, it's quite interesting to me that there you. <laughs> It seems that one of the reasons we're in the mess that we're in is that there's there are a lot of conservative Christians, Bible-believing Christians, that don't have any sense of the progress of the kingdom of God. It's not something that is on their minds, um, and so they they're just a retreatist and defeatist mentality. And then I can retreat into this spiritual, this spiritual only kind of operation. Since Barack Obama, in the American context, began to um, speak of freedom of worship rather than freedom mm-hmm. of religion. 
That's right. Well, he was able to do that because the church mm-hmm. had already basically assumed freedom of worship, this pri- privatistic um, yep. heart deal that has no uh, full exercise right going on. So I think that's one of the biggest things is the kind of the social justice sense was, yes, there are things that need to be rectified. There, there are cases of injustice that need to be rectified. Mm-hmm. And while that has turned into wokeism, we have now still a number of conservatives that aren't thinking in terms that you have just articulated about the mission of God, about the um, the progress of the kingdom, and then then think, well, if we do that, we're immediately going to buy into the other bad ideas right. that this is going to be done by human power, that this that we are somehow going to usher in the kingdom. We're going to usher in the kingdom on Air Force One kind yeah. of thing. Well, no, you don't have to. You don't have to do make that no. mistake. And if you don't, I, I do think there's a lot of Christians in America that are backing off this retreatist and defeatist because they see the downfall of our culture. Yeah. yeah. And you deal with this in your, your massive book, which I've not worked all the way through yet, The Mission of God. But I want to commend it already just from what I have read in it. Can you tell us just in a, a nutshell, why did you write the book? What are you trying to accomplish in this book? Because it plays exactly into these things we're talking about. Well, actually, I, I would say that... Uh, what you've described, what both of you have just described, was one of the primary um, motivators for the book, is that we have the, the pendulum has sort of swung. So the, there was a recognition with the younger evangelicals that, hang on a minute, this purely privatized, pietized, ecclesiasticized faith mm. that seems to have, that, that as a Christian, my task seems to be to go to Bible study, turn up to public worship and give some of my money to the church. But beyond that, what am I supposed to do? What's my calling in the earth? What is my mandate? What is What does it mean to be a child of God and to serve the purposes of his kingdom? And recognizing that the, the, the evangelicalism for a long time had been really kind of silent on the issue of, of culture and the, and the lordship of Christ and its implications for all of life, um, and men like Kuiper and Schaefer kind of overlooked, really, um, they were casting about for a while. How do we, we got to speak to culture. So they're looking for a tool. Mm. And the tool that they're offered is a neo-Marxist one, yeah. social justice. And so I wanted to, um, from a reformational standpoint, almost as a Trojan horse, take up that missiological language of the mission of God, of the, of the missio Dei, but come at it from a genuinely scriptural, taking a Christian philosophy, Christian social philosophy, a, a scriptural foundation to say what is the kingdom of God and what is justice biblically? Mm-hmm. What is mishpat? What is dikasini? What is righteousness? What, what do these things really mean? And what does the lordship of Jesus Christ really mean for culture? Is it this kind of, you know, baptized liberation theology, uh, this sort of neo-Marxist idea? Is that really what uh, God says are the tools for cultural engagement or is or have we missed something rich and deep mm. and profound about the Lordship of Christ and the kingdom of God yeah. so that's what I explore in the mission of God what does it mean for culture for education for law for politics for the arts for all these different areas for the church what does it mean wonderful where, where can people get this book 
So we love them to get it from Ezra Press. Actually, if you go onto our website, ezrainstitute.ca, but you can also get it from Amazon. Okay, but, uh, <laughs> but don't, don't put any money in Amazon's pocket. Go straight to Ezra. Yes, so Dr. Boo, it's been wonderful to have you on the podcast. I mean, uh, there's just so much yeah. to talk about. We, we have to shut this one down, but you probably sense that it's just a whole world has opened up, that there's so many doctrinal issues, cultural issues that need to be examined. Um, Ezra Institute, and you have a podcast called The Cultural Reference. Yeah, we have the podcast for Cultural Reformation. It's on a Wednesday, Worldview Wednesday, uh, mm. where people can subscribe to that for free. And uh, we have a variety of um, short-term residential programs that happen in the summer to train people in Christian worldview, cultural apologetics, Christian philosophy. Wonderful. Yeah, we have um, uh, folks that support founders, and we provide extra content for those that are in the Founders Alliance membership, which if you're not a member, we encourage you to become a member. We have this place we call the Armory, where we just have more informal and sometimes in more in-depth conversations. Would you be willing to stay around for Absolutely. a few minutes for that? Of course. Okay. All Go right. Ahead. Thank you so much for listening to The Sword and the Trial today.